Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 27. I'm Owen Barber at the Centre for Global Development and my guest today is Tim Harford. Tim is a writer at the Financial Times, known especially for his Undercover Economist column and his best-selling book of the same name. You may also know Tim from, uh, if you're interested in the aid industry, from his volume The Market for Aid, which he wrote with Michael Klein when he was at the IFC, or for his book The Logic of Life. Today Tim is at CGD to talk about his new book, Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. Tim, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you very much. Now first let me plug your book. Um, I thought it was really good. It's one of those books that makes you think differently about the world by taking a simple idea and showing how it applies in lots of different aspects of life. So let's, let's start with the main theme of the book, that we achieve difficult things when we plan and expect to fail. Um, you, at one point you set out something you call Peter Palinski's Principles. Peter Palchinski's Principles, Peter yes. Peter Palchinski. So who is Peter Palchinski and what are his principles? So in a nutshell, Peter Palchinski is the engineer who told Stalin that he was wrong. And you can... You Big can mistake. You can guess what happened to Palchinski. So Palchinski was actually a compulsive truth-teller. Uh, he told the Tsar that he was wrong. He composed a letter to the Supreme Soviet explaining that science was more important than socialism. Fortunately, his friends persuaded him not to send it. He toured Europe learning all about engineering, and while he was doing that, he had an affair and wrote back to his wife and said, by the way, I've had an affair. Hope that's cool with you. I mean, he just couldn't, couldn't stop telling the truth, and in the end, he was, he was killed by Stalin. Um, so he's a tragic comic figure. Um, but uh, I, I, one of the things I learned from Palchinsky is that the nature of his criticisms of Stalin's grand engineering projects uh, were um, pointed me in the direction of successful principles for adapting. Um, and they're actually the same thing that you would get if you study evolutionary biology. You'd get the same thing out. Basically, one is variation. You need lots of ideas. You need to be trying lots of different things because things fail a lot. And the second thing uh, is... Uh, the variation needs to be safe. So you can't be trying ideas that will finish you off if, you, uh, if they fail. Clearly, Palchinsky didn't right. take his own advice on that. Um, but he would recommend, he, faced with some uh, project to build a gigantic dam, he would say, well, actually, we don't really know a lot about the geology of the region, and maybe we should build a small dam first. And we don't need a big dam yet. Let's build several small dams, that kind of thing. So you need to, you need to do it small because things go wrong. And the third thing is selection. You need to know the difference between what's working and what's not. And, and a little tragic coda to Palchinsky's life is the very first project he did was to study um, the working conditions of miners in the Don Basin. And he explained that the, to the Tsar that these miners were very, very badly treated and re needed much better conditions. And that was not a welcome message. When the Soviet Union collapsed, we all noticed things like the fall of the Berlin Wall. But one of the key events in the collapse of the Soviet Union was a huge piece of industrial action, a huge miners' strike, which f forced Gorbachev into a humiliating climb down, and it was, a, it was a key moment, the first ever major industrial action in Soviet history. It was 90 years after Peter Palchinsky had first commented on coal miners' conditions, and uh, it, it was the same, it was the great-grandchildren of the original coal miners in the same conditions. So this was a system that, that was, was unable to adapt. So just to summarise those three principles again, you need to try lots of different things. They need to be small enough that failures will, will not ruin you. And you need to be able to distinguish success from failure, which uh, some systems are very ill-equipped to do. 
So one thing I didn't expect when I was uh, when I picked up the book was that one of your examples would be from the military. Um, you, I perhaps lazily tend to think of the military as being very command and control, very top down, not very prone to experimentation, and the kind of place where failure is problematic rather than something that you you can plan for and accept. But you tell us in the book that actually the best military strategists actually adopt some of these principles. What are, what are the examples of that? Yes, the reason I look, it was a surprise to me as well. The reason I looked at the military is because originally ADAPT was not a book about trial and error. It was a book about how complex problems get solved. And <clears throat> so I looked at the war in Iraq because it seemed to me to be an important complex problem. It was only as I looked at all of these different complex problems, uh, poverty, climate change, innovation, financial crisis, Iraq, I realized actually that they're, they're all getting solved because of trial and error or not getting solved because we don't have processes for trial and error. So that was, that was, it was a surprise to me as well. And, and what, I, what I learned looking at Iraq was um, the, the narrative that we tell is things got really, really bad. This operation was entirely botched. The strategy was not working. Iraq was on the brink of civil war. And we had a bad leader, and we got rid of the bad leader, and we got a good leader. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was removed from office after the voters registered their disapproval. Um, General David Petraeus took over in, in charge of the operations in Iraq, and General David Petraeus was a good leader, and he fixed it. And that is the sort of narrative we tend to tell ourselves about how any problem gets fixed. And that's not what happened. What happened was the colonels and the majors of the U.S. Army, at tremendous risk to their own careers, and there were career consequences for them, rebelled against the strategy that they were being forced to implement because they could see on the ground um, taking what Muhammad Yunus in a totally different field calls the worm's eye view. They could see what was happening, they could see the strategy was failing, and they were trying to figure out what else they might do. And, of course, different things were tried and, and not everything worked, but the successful experiments on the ground were, were copied, were spread through the lower ranks of the army. It was like schoolboys handing dirty magazines around. You know, we, we found some tips to deal with the insurgency. Don't tell Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld doesn't even want us to use the word insurgency. So this went around. David Petraeus is a great leader, not because he fixed the thing from the top down, but because even before he was in charge in Iraq, he recognized that this was going on. He pulled all this stuff together. He turned it into a new doctrine for the American army. He launched a media campaign. It got reviewed in the New York Times book review. It was on Charlie Rose. I mean, everyone was talking about this new approach to counterinsurgency. The US army had changed itself from the bottom up. Petraeus was helping to catalyze that. When he came in at the top, the job was, was already half done. Uh, and it, in a nutshell, it's what one British general told me. He said, we, we obviously and readily learn lessons from the front line because they save lives. At the lower levels of the army, that's where we learn the lessons. But at the top, it's much, much harder, and we're much more reluctant to adapt. It, it seemed to me, reading the military chapter, that there were, in principle, two di distinct lessons that one could learn. One was the importance of, um, uh, of the top adapting by learning and the problems that they've had in doing that, and, and you gave the Donald Rumsfeld example. The other lesson in the book was the idea that you need to, to try to delegate decision-making and let commanders on the ground make their own judgments. And one of the tricks, one of the difficult things to know is uh, to what extent do you need a top-down strategy, 
And to what extent do you want people in the field to be able to make their own decisions and where, where do you draw the line? And you give the examples in business of Whole Foods in the United States and Timpsons in the UK that have, that have done very well because they've empowered their staff to make their own decisions. But that seems to be a slightly different point than your general narrative about um, failing and learning from failure and failing safely, the idea that actually you don't want a strategy at all. Um, so it, how, do, how does the idea of delegation fit into your overall story? That's a good question. Um, I think delegation uh, is not always the solution, but it makes experimentation and uh, trial and error often makes it easier. Uh, one is it's you get more variation if there's delegation because different people are trying different things. You also tend to have uh, a closer response to reality uh, through delegation. Um, so you're selecting good ideas versus bad ideas because people see what's working. So that's why I think delegation tends to be helpful. You clearly don't have to uh, delegate to experiment. Uh, if you look at organizations such as the Cochrane Collaboration, which is a very, very important medical um, uh, institution, I suppose, is the way to describe it. Uh, that is, that is a, a database pulling together information about uh, different randomized clinical trials that have been done in medicine and being very, very systematic about how we collect and collate this information rather than just saying to doctors, well, just improvise, do whatever you like. You know, we, we actually need to be systematic about this. So delegation is not always the way forward, um, but, but it often helps. Uh, and one of the lessons from the book, incidentally, is um, it's not enough just to delegate. You also need some system of monitoring. And often the best people to monitor are peers. So your colleagues are the ones, and this happens in the Whole Foods supermarket, it happens in the US Army, it happens in Google, um, it happens all over the place. Your colleagues are the ones who actually know whether you're doing a good job or not. So if you've got some system that makes that peer monitoring effective, that, that really helps turn delegation and decentralization into something that will experiment in a, in a productive way. But as we're thinking about how we take your ideas and apply them in practice, and we'll come to the development world in a second, understanding this combination of, and, and a, a big part of the debate in development is how much top-down strategy do we have and how much decentralization and delegation do we have? And it seems to me, uh, if I'm hearing you right, that, that you need both and you, you need a feedback loop that connects what's happening on the ground to the strategy, and, that, and that's important. But I'm not sure that that answers the question of how would we know if we had enough decentralization and delegation or, or too much, or I mean, what, had, what kind of uh, measures do we have of what the right amount is? That's a, that's a good question, and it, it's not one I have an easy answer to. Um, how, how would we know that we decentralized enough? Um, my instinct, looking at the aid industry, uh, which I used to be part of, uh, is that we, it, it is by nature a top-down industry. Um, ultimately, the power comes from the donors. The donors are governments. They are highly centralized institutions. That's what a government mm -hmm. is, and they're dealing with other governments. And the narrative in the official aid industry tends to be one of harmonization, um, which uh, I understand that fragmented aid and, and disorganized aid can be damaging, um, but I mean, can you imagine the coffee industry getting together and trying to harmonize? You know, Starbucks and uh, uh, Cozy and all of these coffee chains getting together and say, well, we need to harmonize our offerings. I mean, we, they'd be prosecuted. But, um, and we, you know, we, feel, we feel quite happy with these people experimenting and doing these different things because we feel that the feedback loops are there. 
there is a reward for doing things right and not doing things right. So the challenge for the aid industry, I think, is not so much to say, well, you need to decentralize more or centralize more, but we need to get the feedback loops in place. And if the feedback loops were in place to reward something that was working and to withdraw funding and effort and attention from things that were not working, we would just be a lot less worried about our failure to, co to coordinate. Our failure to coordinate would be an, a strength rather than a weakness. I'm curious to um, get your sense of whether you're saying something very different from, say, Charles Darwin talking about biological evolution, survival of the fittest, or Hayek talking about markets. I mean, is the idea that what you need is experimentation and failure? And uh, are you just saying that that turns out to be something that applies across a lot of uh, different walks of life? So are you, are, we, are you simply applying Hayek and Darwin to more things, or are you, are you? Is there something different? Some some broader point? Uh, I no. I think conceptually, it's a Darwinian view. Uh, you wouldn't. Uh, you're not associating yourself with Hayek. Just uh, well, no Hayek as well. Although uh, I recently had some very bad news about uh, Hayek's political views that I was not aware of, with his endorsement of General Pinochet. So I need to add a footnote to the second edition of the book. I mean, you. This is so. Um, but Hayek too was was all about decentralization also and and the evolution of of effective systems. Um, so in that respect, I think the the concept is not new. The what what is new uh, in the book is to show how to make the case that this is very important in the economy, which a minority of economists make this case. I am not the first person to do it, but it is not the majority view. Certainly not reflected in economic models. Um, and furthermore, to then say, well, if trial and error, if evolution is so important, um, why don't we do more of it? And how does it work? So the whole book is really uh, uh, examples, case studies, anecdotes, narratives about trial and error either happening or not happening in all kinds of different fields. That was actually a challenge for me as, as a writer because you know, I started off as an economist and naturally I sort of say, well, look, here we, I, I put the case to my publisher. I said, trial and error is really important. We need to write a book about why we should all experiment more. And the first question that my editor had for me is, okay, well, that's fine. So what does it take? Why do we find it difficult? And then, then that became, that turned out to be a really interesting idea. What, what psychologically, why is it hard? Politically, why is it hard? And it's maybe not a coincidence that every chapter in the book has a hero, has somebody who actually has tremendous strength of character um, because it, our systems do not adapt and experiment very naturally. It actually takes very brave people to, to make them do so. Can we talk about climate change? Because there's um, a key issue in development um, where you argue very forcefully that um, the adoption of trial and error techniques is going to be very important. And you have this lovely story of trying to, uh, trying to do a planned response to climate change where you try and figure out um, what the uh, most environmentally friendly action is at each point and how difficult that is. Um, tell us a bit about why you think that the trial and error approach would work well in climate change and what that means in practice. So if we think about the problem of climate change, it's a very complicated problem. I, and I made that point once at a meeting of activists and 
uh, they were very unhappy that I said it was complicated because they thought that I was suggesting that the science was very uncertain and you know we couldn't be sure it was happening. And clearly, science is uncertain, but that's not what I was making. That's not the point I was making. The point I was making is what is a, what is our res appropriate response to climate change? Well, it is largely trying to reduce emissions of carbon dioxide and to reduce emissions of other greenhouse gases, and also to explore other adaptations. Can we? Um, is there a way to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? Is there a way that we can adapt to the climate change? New crops, new new ways, all sorts of different things, and these basically involve all seven billion people on the planet changing in small ways or large ways, everything they do every day. And every product that we consume, every action that we take, has an impact on the, on the planet. So seven billion people taking hundreds of decisions a day, that sounds like a complex problem to me. And that's the nature of the change that we need to make. Uh, it doesn't strike me as, it shouldn't be controversial, but it's something that people don't appreciate enough. Um, so the dialogue on climate change, um, in as much as we have a healthy dialogue at all, and clearly the, there's a lot of nonsense talked, but in as much as we have a healthy dialogue at all, it seems to be all about making the moral case that we really need to redouble our targets and commit to ever greater reductions in a very top-down way. And it's never discussed exactly what policies you are going to put in place to make this happen. And when I look at the policies that are used, they're often very counterproductive. Um, they, so just one simple example. In the UK, we have something called the Merton Rule. Uh, it's sprung up and it's been widely copied uh, by local councils. That's a rule that you can't get permission to build a new development unless it has the capacity to generate 10% of its electricity on site through renewable resources. And it sounds like a really easy, it doesn't cost the council anything to make that rule. And so developers, whenever they build a new building, they have to install some renewable capacity. It sounds like a great idea. Who could object to that? You actually look at the effects. So I talk to engineers and, and architects who have to live with this rule. So one of them said, well, I'm trying to build a skyscraper in central London. Um, a skyscraper is an inherently very environmentally efficient building. It is right next to, to Waterloo Station. People are going to come here by public transport. Then they're going to travel. Uh, there's a lot of office capacity, and they will travel by elevator. An elevator is an incredibly efficient machine because it's, it's counterweights. If these offices were just out in a rural Berkshire somewhere, you'd have huge, huge car parks. Everyone would be driving. So it's a hugely efficient concept, irrespective of whether there's any renewable energy on site. Now I need to satisfy the Merton rule. So I need to ge generate 10% of the electricity on site. But 10% of the electricity of a skyscraper is huge. Mm. And where's the space? To, there's no space for solar panels. There's no space for windmills. It, it can't be done. So what do you do? It turns out there is one solution. You have a wood-burning furnace in the basement of the sky skyscraper in the center of London, and you drive trucks twice a week and dump wood, wood pellets in a storage chamber the size of a swimming pool, and that satisfies the Merton rule. Meanwhile, you have an out-of-town supermarket, loads and loads of space for um, uh, uh, solar thermal um, uh, panels, uh, for windmills, for heat pumps under the car park that can cool and heat, and incredibly efficient. You could generate electricity from this site because of the nature of the site. Um, it would be tremendously useful, but the Merton rule basically makes none of these demands. It says, oh, just put up some token, irrespective of the fact that you could generate all the electricity here, just put up some token uh, piece of renewable energy. Oh, and by the way, the entire building's an environmental disaster because it's an out-of-town shopping centre. So the, it, it's just one example of rules that we impose that seem sensible, but given the complexity of the economic system, they're not really helping us 
respond effectively. So in that case, the problem is that everybody's having to do the same thing, whereas it makes more sense to do it at the supermarket than it does to do it in the skyscraper. And that's why you come down to the idea of carbon taxes or a cap-and-trade Yeah, which, which I regard as, as effectively equivalent. I mean, there are some small differences between cap-and-trade and carbon taxes, but actually they both put a price on carbon and they both basically do the same thing. Right, we could have a separate discussion about that, but let's, let's take that for granted that those are broadly the same idea, which is that you put up the price of carbon and then you let those decisions percolate through the system. Different people will find different ways of reducing their consumption of carbon or, or finding ways of generating clean energy. So... A lot of people who are um, often to the left are very worried about the idea of using markets to solve these big social problems, that, that this is too important to leave to the market um, and that we need government intervention to make it happen. What's your answer to that? Um, I, I don't think a carbon tax would solve the whole problem. I think uh, we need some support for the innovation system because there are certain sorts of innovations that... Um, short-term rise in the price of carbon is not going to suddenly generate a very long-term uh, transformative changes in the energy system. So it's not going to solve the whole problem. But basically, it's a way of um, providing information to everyday people to make the decisions that they really ought to make for the sake of the planet. I have a little sort of comic vignette of this well-meaning environmentalist um, in my book, where he's he's trying really hard to save the planet, but he's because he's he's just seen an Al Gore movie and he's convinced it's really important, but he doesn't really know what he's doing, and he just makes all kinds of mistakes. Um, he's doing things that seem sensible but are actually counterproductive. So, for instance, he decides not to have toast in the morning because you know the toaster consumes electricity, so he has milk on his cereal instead. But actually, milk is an embodiment of methane because um, you can't produce milk without a cow, and cows produce methane, and methane. Uh, out of their mouths, by the way, just to be clear. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And actually, um, uh, it, it would have been much better if it just stuck to the toast. I and think, there so, I think many you said there's more, more carbon emissions embodied in a piece of butter on the toast than there was in toasting the toast. There is, yeah, instance. I had a very smart research assistant who calculated that for me, and I trust her on that one. She, uh, she came up with this wonderful factoid. So, yeah, the toast is, is, is less of a problem for the planet than the butter on the toast. So, um, so this, again, is an example, actually, of, of the idea that we need to decentralise decisions. Yeah. And but, but, find with, but with the information and the incentives, and at the moment we don't have the information and incentives, and the carbon tax would provide it. I mean, a metaphor for the carbon tax is imagine any time you bought any product or took any action, you pointed a smartphone at the, at the barcode and got a little readout that said, this is the carbon dioxide, the methane and so on, embodied in this, in this product. Um, effectively, a carbon tax is doing that. It's like a huge cloud computer that is calculating the, the implicit cost through the market system. And as an extra bonus, it not only gives you the information, it actually gives you an incentive to respond to the information. Because if you can do something, whether it's moving to an apartment closer to where you live or drinking espresso instead of cappuccino because there's less milk, I mean, it could be anything that you do. Um, you, you, know, you are being given an incentive to make those decisions. And you decide you know, how much you really value the cappuccino, whether you want to keep going or not. We don't want the government to ban cappuccino, but we do want people to know it's actually a more environmentally damaging drink than, say, an espresso is. So let's, um, let's switch to the broader development questions. And a big issue in development at the moment, all the rage, is this question of uh, impact evaluation, and in particular the use of randomised trials to, uh, to test uh, what kinds of policies and interventions work and what kinds of things 
don't work. And you have an example. This is an example in your book of um, where trying things to see what actually works in education, in, in your particular example, uh, gave us information we didn't have. Tell us about about what you learned from that. So this is almost the canonical example of a randomised trial in, in development uh, run by um, Ted Miguel and Michael Kramer in Kenya a few years ago. And the basic idea was, um, it was funded by a, a, a Dutch NGO. We would like Kenyan children to be better educated. Well, what do we do? Well, why don't we just give them textbooks? Seems like a perfectly reasonable idea. Now, what Kramer and Miguel did was to say, well, um, let us get a survey, a group of worthy schools for this project. Make sure that there are more schools in that pool than you can afford to actually supply with textbooks. So maybe you can supply 100 schools. We'll choose 200 schools. Um, now, all those schools are equally worthy. Um, we will randomize which of the schools get the textbooks and which don't. There was no ethical problem with that because there were only ever 100 schools going to get the textbooks. And what could be fairer than a lottery if you have a scarce resource? That's perfectly, perfectly fair. Um, we will hand out these textbooks and then we will go back and we will find out in a year's time whether it helped. Very simple idea um, and just really making a virtue of, of necessity uh, and creating an evaluation where, uh, at fairly low cost where one previously didn't exist. They went back and, and they discovered well the textbooks were no use. They didn't make a difference. They didn't. To they, didn't they didn't improve. Um, didn't improve test scores, for instance. Um, the I, I mean I forget the details about exactly in what respect the textbooks were no use, but they were they were regarded as a disappointment, and they I think they helped a few of the very smartest children, and it made sense because I, I think these textbooks were written in the third language of these rural children, so it's it's a big ask to make them work. So then. They adapted and they said, we're going to have a new project and we're going to supply beautiful coloured flip charts, geography and biology and so on, and teachers will be able to use these flip charts and they'll be friendlier for the, for the children and so on. So it's a great, great example. But rather than just saying, well, that's obviously the solution, they did the same thing again, another randomised trial. They came back, the flip charts didn't work either. What eventually did work was actually worming tablets, treating the children for tapeworm, because these children are malnourished. Um, they're missing school or they can't concentrate in school because they don't have enough nutrients because the tapeworm is, is parasitic and is consuming a lot of nutrients. And tapeworm uh, tablets were very cheap and very effective. And so this lesson was learned. Um, and what could have been regarded either as a success but wasn't a success. I mean, the, the, the NGO could have just distributed leaflets about all the wonderful uh, textbooks they were giving to kids. And that, I mean, that is how a lot of development organizations raise their money. To their credit, they didn't do that. Um, neither did they regard what they'd done as a failure. They said, well, we didn't fail. We learned something that didn't work. And that's a very valuable piece of information. And there was a coda to this. Well, there were, I guess there were two codas. So one is that um, th the idea was then rolled out in India. And they tried to adapt it to local circumstances and said, well, actually, the problem here seems to be anemia. So we're going to treat the children for anemia with, with iron tablets rather than tapeworm. So the same basic concept, but adapted to local circumstances. Um, that said, I am not aware of the follow-up study being published for that original piece of work, and I think it should have been published by now. I'm not aware of sufficient replication that has gone right. on. And so this is a, this is a problem, um, because while randomized trials are getting really a lot, a lot of traction, and I think justifiably, because I think they're very important, 
we still don't have the institutions necessary to sustain, say, replication right. attempts or trial registries or the sorts of things that very, very slowly and painfully have caught on in medicine because we realise they're very important for getting the most out of randomised trials. So it's a it's a right. it's a great step step in the right direction, but we need to do more. Part of the reason for that, of course, is that academics have an incentive to develop new and interesting techniques. But once they've developed it and proven it and published a paper about it, it isn't their business to then uh, replicate it and use the same technique in lots of other countries and, and check whether you get the same results because um, their incentive is to develop interesting new academic surveys and it ought to be somebody else's job to figure out whether these same results apply in other contexts and, and scale it up. And, of, of course, what happens in health is you have to do randomised control trials because otherwise you can't sell the drug. Yeah. But there isn't a requirement in development that says you have to do a randomised control trial. So on the whole, we don't. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And, and I suspect it, it's impractical to insist on a randomised control trial for all development projects, that social projects are harder to evaluate than medical uh, treatments. So there's a reason why randomised trials are less popular. Um, but there's, I mean, the, the chapter in, in the book where I talk about randomised trials and development, I know there are, there are two excellent books now out about this, uh, Poor Economics and More Than Good Intentions. Uh, I recommend them both. Um, this, the chapter in my book, what, what I what I try to add that you will not get, for example, from Esther Duflo or Dean Carlin, is um, looking at what happened in medicine and the evolution of randomised trials, the ethics of randomised trials, and then the struggle that that um, their proponents faced to introduce them in medicine. Because actually, I think that's a, there's a tremendous amount to learn. And one fascinating uh, thing that is true of medicine and I think is not sufficiently true of development economics is where are doctors trained? They're trained not in universities but in university hospitals. They are trained by practicing doctors who are also researchers. The researchers are producing um, academically rigorous research that is informed by um, their own clinical practice. And Doctors, when they go on to be practicing doctors, get the British Medical Journal regularly summarizing all the latest research. So there's an incredibly tight loop between research and practice. And I, I don't think we should simply say it's the responsibility of the academics to do the evaluation and then you know, the World Bank should pay for the replication, maybe. I mean, maybe the World Bank should pay for the replication, but it, I don't think it's as simple as that. We need, we need a tighter loop between research and practice in development economics. That's a very interesting insight. Now, one so one of the critiques is about the ethics of it, and you've given a convincing uh, argument that says, well, we have to limit who we can provide these things to, and uh, the point you make in the book is surely it's also unethical to go on doing things without ever finding out what works and what doesn't work. But there's another um, critique of this approach, which is the Lon Pritchett point, which says that you randomised trials work well for things like how do you make sure your clinic is properly stocked or how do you um, get more kids to go to school? But it doesn't answer the big questions in development, which is how do you bring about institutional change? How do you bring about the introduction of, you know, uh, of more democratic and accountable governments? Those are the big fundamental shifts. How do you, how do you s start up a process of industrialization and economic growth? And I, th I think his, uh, his quote is that we end up, it's a cul-de-sac of precise answers to trivial questions and that it doesn't address the big questions. What, what, I think Esther would say, well, no, you, these, these smaller questions add up to a big picture. But where are you on that? 
So uh, I, I do not sympathize with the, the idea that these are trivial questions. So I was born in 1973, and like most babies born in 1973 in the West, I was put on my stomach to sleep because that was the received wisdom of the doctors at the time. Benjamin Spock's baby and child care book said this is what you should do. Um, there was no contrary evidence. Um, gradually, contrary evidence started to build. This is actually not a safe way to uh, leave your children sleeping. It's a small effect, but over millions and millions and millions of babies, it's very important. And it took too long for the trials to be done and then too long for the information to be uh, uh, promulgated and to turn into practical advice. And a recent epidemiological study reckoned that 60,000, about 60,000 babies died as a result of this evaluation not having been done quickly enough and the information being released quickly enough. So I reject the idea that randomised trials study trivial problems. But you have to sympathise with Lance's broader point that ultimately what's going on in China, for instance, is not because of randomised trials. And the rise of Europe, the rise of America, was not the result of randomised trials. It was the result of much more informal uh, and grander scale experimentation. So the market system is very experimental. China is not a market economy, but China's reforms under Deng Xiaoping were highly experimental. Uh, the idea was, well, we'll try this, we'll tolerate ver various experiments going on, and we will shut down what's not working, and we will copy or allow to be copied what is working. And that, that happened again and again and again. I, mean, I described this in, my, in the last chapter of my first book, The Undercover Economist. It's a very experimental uh, political system there in China for all its faults. Um, so towards the end of the chapter about development, I broaden things out. Uh, I talk about your work, Owen, on feedback loops, and I talk about uh, the general idea of how do we uh, experiment and select good ideas on a bigger scale. So this could be anything to do with proper evaluation of aid agencies, you know, who's doing good aid and who's not, um, proper monitoring, transparency of aid flows, or even some, really, some of the really grand stuff. So Paul Romer's idea of charter cities. Uh, well, ultimately, what is that but an experiment on a, a small enough scale to be survivable but a big enough scale to make a difference? So randomised trials are great, but they are not the only kind of experiment, and development needs a lot a lot more experiments and a lot better feedback loops, which is a point you've made yourself very cogently. So one issue that a, a number of people have raised, um, particularly on the Development Drums page on Facebook, um, about your idea that we need to, to learn how to fail is, is the difficulty of failing safely in development. There's a very brittle, fragile consensus that allows us to go on spending development aid. And uh, we feel at the moment as if to sustain that consensus, we have to emphasize the success we're having. And that if we have too many public failures, uh, the consequence will be that public, you know, congressional support in the United States, parliamentary support, public support for aid will decline. And you've seen this a bit with the Global Fund, who had a, a big audit process. They uncovered some uh, quite small amounts, or in, in the grand scheme of things, quite small amounts of corruption. They published that information, and the consequence was that Germany, Ireland, and Sweden cut their funding to the Global Fund. So if we have a, a, a culture in which when people uh, confess to failure and, and try and learn from it, the result is their stakeholders back away from them, that may be good for the system as, the whole, for, uh, as a whole, but it's not good for the individual who failed, right? This is your guppy example. The, the guppies evolved to, to acquire camouflage, but that's no fun if you're the individual guppy who got eaten. Uh, so how do, how do we 
how do we learn to fail well in the development system in that kind of environment? Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I very much sympathise with this with this problem. If you think about the incentives in politics, and development is politics, um, they're very different from the incentives we have in markets or in, say, scientific progress. So in a market, you can have 100 failures and one success. And if that success is General Electric or Google, um, then it's worth the 100 failures, because those, those failures would all you know, be on a fairly small scale. In science, you have lots of failed experiments, lots of failed theories, but the whole scientific method, albeit it's you know, imperfectly implemented, the whole scientific method is selecting for the stuff that is working. So again, you can have 100 failures, one success, that's progress. In politics, including in development, the incentives are reversed. You have 100 successes, one failure, and your political opponents will seize upon the failure and talk about that. And so I, I, I fully sympathize with this. It's a big, big problem. Um, so is there a solution? Uh, I think partly it's about uh, creating a, a culture where you're very transparent and upfront about what you are setting out to do. So when you launch a new program to say, uh, this is an idea we think may work, and we are going to do a trial, and we will see if it works. And if it does not work, we will shut it down, and we will try something else. Rather than, say, auditing something and coming back and saying, well, we discovered all kinds of problems. I mean, there's the, this idea, if you, if you set up expectations in advance, that helps. Um, uh, we, we also, it would be just wonderful to, um, to be able to get away from the current debate in, um, you know, does aid work? I mean, I just find this debate so pathetic and so tedious. And sadly, every book on aid, even some very good books, starts with this, oh, starts with Dambisa Moyo and Bill Easterly versus Jeff Sachs. And I mean, it's just so boring. Because what we, we, the question that's being asked here, without specifically, I don't want to criticize Easterly or Sachs specifically, but the way the debate has turned into is just, does aid work or does aid not work? Well, this is, you know, right. this is just in, this is an insane question. It's like saying, does, you know, does you, health work? You know, does health work? You know, are teachers effective or are they not effective? It depends on the teacher. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, does software work or not? It depends on the software. I mean, it's a crazy question. And so we have to grow up and, and say, we are going to try to discover which aid works and which doesn't. And I, I feel, I understand the nervousness of demonstrating beyond doubt that some aid projects have failed. But I think we have to get to that stage. And if we manage expectations in advance, it's something that we can do. And we, and we, we just we owe it, uh, as professionals in the aid industry owe it to the poor people they are trying to help. You know, we, we can't evaluate ourselves because we might embarrass ourselves. I mean, that's, that's unsupportable. So randomized controlled trials are not the only way for aid agencies to learn and for the development system to learn. And it seems to me that in your appeal for uh, more experimentation, um, more willingness to, to fail, more willingness to learn from that failure, um, there are a range of things that we could do which are more related to the experience of people on the ground 
about what's working and what isn't working. So RCTs have this slightly top-down characteristic that you, uh, you know, you have uh, researchers from MIT or from Yale who come and test whether it worked or not. What are the ways that we can experiment and fail and learn that don't involve RCTs? That's a very important question because there's so many things cannot be tested with RCTs. Google did not come about because of a randomized controlled trial. General Electric was not created by a randomized controlled trial, although experimentation has been very important for both those companies. And in the book, I have half a chapter, probably less than half a chapter, about randomized controlled trials. Um, but, but the whole of the rest of the book is still about experimentation. It's still about trial and error, just on a much more informal basis. So if we think about the, the, the basic ingredients, we're going back to those Peter Palchinsky principles. It's lots of new ideas. The ideas need to be small enough uh, that they're not dangerous. And they need to be uh, selected one way or another. Um, so the, the pluralism is important. We need organizations, organizational structures that can tolerate pluralism. Um, so I'm not as worried as many people are about fragmentation in the aid industry. It, it can be pathological, but we could also harness it. We could turn fragmentation into pluralism. Uh, and clearly, the aid agencies are not the only actors in this space either. Um, so the, the idea that um, development projects don't have to be like Coca-Cola. You remember what Andy Warhol wrote about Coca-Cola? You know, All the Cokes are the same, and all the Cokes are good. So we want all the development projects to be the same, and all the development projects to be good, but actually, those two things are in conflict. We need to tolerate the fact that um, they'll be different. We'll be experimenting. And then you know, anything that in increases the effectiveness of, of feedback uh, will work. So the Center for Global Development, I think, has been behind some very interesting pushes there. So there's the advanced market commitments that I know you, Owen, were one of the champions of. Uh, and there, what we're saying is we, uh, we're putting donor money behind uh, important drugs but the people who have to take responsibility for creating the drugs are pharmaceutical companies, and they won't get paid until the drugs are produced. In fact, it's more than that. Not only won't they get paid until the drugs are produced, they won't get paid until somebody somewhere is willing to buy these drugs, albeit at a subsidized price. Uh, and they will get paid in proportion to the number of doses that they sell. So this is clearly a strong feedback loop. And I think um, early signs are, uh, I know the, the first vaccinations were given out just a few months ago, that it's been very effective, and we need more of that. Um, another example, cash on delivery aid, another project from the Center of global, for Global Development. I'm not just being polite no, because I'm sitting in the Center for Global Development, right. but uh, obviously the whole idea of the center is to try new ideas and to insist on good evaluation. So they're very much in sympathy with, with the, the ideas behind the book. So cash on delivery aid, um, we will agree with the Department for Education in Kenya that they, we want certain outcomes from Kenyan schools, certain numbers of children to graduate with certain reading or mathematical abilities, say, and we will pay them when they deliver. And clearly the Ministry for Education in Kenya is not the only actor, and they're not on the ground, they're not school teachers, but they're probably closer to the ground than, than a donor. So we're pushing it down and we're letting them experiment, letting them figure out what works, and we're incentivizing it. And a third example, um, a much grander example, a much crazier example in a way, and, and this is not a center for global development project, Paul Romer's idea of charter cities. So Romer's idea of charter cities, which many listeners to the Development Drum podcast will know about, is wouldn't it be great if governments set up cities where different rules um, of engagement applied, different infrastructure and different regulations? 
And Roma also says maybe we could get other governments to supervise those areas. And now, that, of course, is what's raised a lot of hackles. I don't see that as essential. I know Paul thinks it's important. But for me, what's really interesting about the Charter Cities idea is it's an experiment on a very big scale, but not, not a catastrophic scale. These cities can fail without untold human misery. People can just not turn up, um, or they can succeed. And they're valuable because they allow governments to try something new without having to reform regulations everywhere in their economy. So, and there are many, many other examples. But experimentation is vital, but it doesn't have to be a rigorous randomized control trial. It can be a much more informal process. What can we as outsiders do to, to create conditions in which development organizations can experiment in that way? I mean, the, the institutions we have have evolved um, within the environment they're in. And on the whole, they haven't evolved good mechanisms for learning because they haven't needed to. They've continued to get funding um, from taxpayers um, for, uh, mainly um, without doing the kind of experimentation that you're talking about. What is it that we can do, uh, people who are listening to this podcast, either who are working in these organizations uh, or who are working in the development space, uh, to try to create the conditions, because it seems very difficult for organizations to, to make this leap into being more experimental. You know, we, we talked about the global fund example earlier. You know, there isn't much tolerance of failure. The, the media pick up the one failure and exaggerate it. What are the things that would, would make it a, a more conducive space? And what, and what do you think might happen if we don't do it? Uh, if we don't do it, uh, more of the same, which is uh, an industry which, despite uh, you know, tremendous resources, um, is not as effective as it could be and not as innovative as it could be. And this is one of the most important problems in the world. So we, we need to do as well as we possibly can. I'm not that interested in this general question of whether you know, aid works in, in general, in abstract or not. Much more interested in finding out which parts of it work and which parts of it don't. Um, so. I think w one thing is, let, let's be positive. Uh, let's, um, let's just look for improvements. So rather than this question of, is it good or is it not good? Let's just go straight to, cut to the number of it. The question we care about was, how do we make it better? Uh, what are the spe specific things we could do to make it better? So that's one thing. Um, I think um, we, we, we sort of owe it to ourselves uh, and, and to sort of proper discourse in this environment to take evidence seriously. Uh, and not to be ideological and not to say, uh, well, you know, the, these guys are the good guys, this particular economist or this particular project or this particular institution is on the side of the angels and then they should need unconditional backing or vice versa. You know, those guys are just idiots. They never, they never get anything right. You know, we need to be interested in evidence and be supportive of evidence. Um, and I would like us to, to uh, be tolerant of honest failures. Uh, I wish... Uh, development organizations, in fact, political institutions of, of all stripes, would far more often say, we, we did this, we thought it might work, we evaluated it, it did not work, we are going to stop doing it. And they should get a round of applause. But instead, we, you know, we talk about U-turns and wasted money. Um, and that's down to us, you know, as voters, for instance, we, we don't tolerate that in our governments, and we have to. Otherwise, we get the governments we deserve. So Janine Cooper asked on the uh, Facebook page for Development Drums whether you have any suggestions for people who want to get funding from donors for experimental approaches. Are there any things that you think uh, will make donors be willing to fund those kinds of experiments? Oh, gosh. Um, so I've never applied for donor funding, so my advice is probably going to be very bad. Um, but I, uh, I think 
to to look at the history of randomized controlled trials um, uh, or experiments more broadly in medicine and uh, and in development, but medicine there's there's more of a history, and just to demonstrate time and time again um, that good evaluations have tremendous scientific power. They tell us a lot, but they also have tremendous rhetorical power. And you can say to a donor, look, if we if we do this, and if it doesn't work, we've learned something important. And if it does work, we've really got incredible ammunition. At the, at the moment, we've got just the same few randomized controlled trials being talked about, um, because we haven't got very many. And, and we need to change that. Um, so you know, that's the thing. The, these, the, Evidence has scientific value, but it also has rhetorical value. I wish it had more rhetorical value, but it would still be very powerful. I've been pretty struck, actually, how much money has been drawn into the big vertical health programs. And I suspect that's in part because those health programs uh, are largely supporting um, interventions for which there are randomized controlled trials, particularly drugs. And they're able to say with much more, much more clarity what it is that they're achieving than alternatives. For example, we don't have very much money being sucked into health systems because we haven't got very much experimental evidence about what kinds of intervention work in health systems. So I, it seems to me weird that um, more of the development industry hasn't taken this up just in order to compete uh, more aggressively with the funding that's being sucked into those small number of places where there is RCT evidence available. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, uh, one issue that we, we've been talking about um, the way that the development industry evolves, but there is a there. Can we widen that out to the question of what it is to develop? And there is a story that says that um, what it is to be a, 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 an advanced economy and a successful society is to have successful problem-solving institutions. You have functioning government, you have functioning market economy, uh, fun functioning financial markets, fun functioning health system. Um, so do you think that there's a lesson in your book for how we go about creating the conditions in which those things emerge, not necessarily as aid agencies, but what governments and citizens should do in their own countries to try to accelerate the development process? I mean, is, is that, a, is that a too big of a, a stretch from, from what it is that you're saying? It's an issue that I look at briefly. And the research I describe, I think, is fascinating. But I don't think it offers any easy answers. Uh, so I look at research by Cesar Hidalgo and Ricardo Hausman. Ricardo is an economist at the Kennedy School of Government. Cesar is a physicist at MIT. And they've worked together, fascinating work, on um, I suppose what you would call the, the structure of product space. What they're trying to discover is, um, well, first of all, what kind of products are like other products? So are apples like pears? And it, it, it may, sometimes it seems obvious that apples are like pears, but it, it may not be obvious. And what, the way they create that information is to look at exports and say, if lots of countries export apples, and the same list of countries also exports pears, therefore apples are like pears. Um, and it may be to do with climate. It may be to do with phytosanitary re regulations. It may be to do with access to ports um, or skilled agronomists. I mean, there are lots of things it could be down to. And the more sophisticated the product, the more sort of things are underpinning it. So they, they, there are various reasons to believe that there are, there's a huge variety of what they call capabilities that make it possible to produce certain kinds of products and services. We cannot observe these capabilities. And anything, the kind of thing that we talk about institutions, anything from uh, you know, particular detailed regulation of um, uh, robot mobile phone licensing to the fact that an internet business needs a credit card network 
and functioning addresses and a, and a non-corrupt post office. I mean, there's so many different possible capabilities out there. So they're looking at these capabilities and they're trying to understand how countries move across capability space and acquire new capabilities. And there's, a, there's a, an awkward message really for both sides of an old debate, the, the big push debate. Because what Hidalgo and Hausman show is that you possibly do need big pushes sometimes to get an economy from a backwater in product space where they haven't got the right capabilities and there's nothing they can do, there's no sort of easy steps they could take to acquire the right capabilities. It needs some dramatic move. Um, so that's an argument for industrial policy. But the, the sheer complexity of the product space and the complexities of the capabilities that underpin it that we don't really understand tell us why industrial policy is so often disappointing. Um, so I describe that work, but I think it, it leaves us with a challenge, but it's not a challenge that's easily solved. So Robbie Barkle put exactly that challenge to you in on Facebook, which is if these things are complex, if development is, is a complex system, does that mean that essentially government, that the, the space for government policy and government intervention is narrowed because the effects of interventions are unpredictable in a complex environment? Oh, no, not at all. I think that um, we just have to, to be adaptive when we, take, when we make those interventions. Uh, we're not talking about a nuclear power station here or, or, or a fragile financial system. Uh, there is a chapter in my book about those things, but in development space, uh, I think there's less of that fragility. These are very important problems. I don't think they're massively fragile problems. Lots of things governments can try on a small scale and see if they work, whether it's a regulatory reform or a piece of infrastructure. Donors can do it, governments can do it, NGOs can do it. And the fact that the product space is complex simply means where well, you, you need a lot of experiments and a lot of feedback, but you, you, know, you can move through a complex right. You space. don't have a problem of, of high risk of failure. If you, oh, you don't have a problem that failure is a, is a catastrophe. As long as the failures can be kept small, which I think in many, uh, although people's lives are at stake, they are also at stake, say, when we do medical experiments. And we've, we've learned we, we, the information is so important we need to produce it. Um, so as long as the failures can be set, kept small and we can learn quickly and move on, I mean, that is how complex problems have always been solved. So I'd like to change gear just at the end to uh, when I read your book, I was uh, I rather envied your ability to weave together these different stories, these different examples into a compelling overall narrative. And I wondered, as a matter of how you go about doing that, do you start off by collecting all the stories and then think, what's my what's my overall narrative or do you start with how do you find the stories do you have a card index of everything you read every newspaper article you you write a little how do you how do you bring together the this, this big picture story with all these compelling examples that bring it to life well you're very kind and uh, every book is different uh, and this book um was very much a uh, appropriately enough uh, an exercise in trial and error so trying to figure out what the book was actually about, it was initially how can economics so save the world and gradually became, well, who cares whether the solutions come from economics or not? Let's just talk about saving the world. And then rather than a laundry list of possible policy problems, which is not very interesting uh, and not very plausible either, it became a realization as I started looking at more and more of these problems, well, actually trial and error comes up again and again. Experimentation comes up again and again. And then it's like, you know, you buy a new car and you start seeing lots of the new car around. So you, you start discovering um, ideas um, and examples of experimentation that, that, you, that you weren't aware of. So just a couple of, of examples. Um, I'm a big fan of Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Science. 
taught me a lot. It gave me a lot of context on randomized controlled trials. But Ben Goldacre mentioned this guy, Archie Cochrane, who inspired the creation of uh, the Cochrane Collaboration. In passing, he said, oh, he's a really, really cool guy. I said, well, I'll read Archie Cochrane's autobiography. And he's not just a cool guy, he's completely amazing. He's just, he's a hero. And he did amazing things and saved a lot of lives and put a lot of noses out of joint. And, but you know, you can read a biography or you read something and actually it turns out doesn't, it's not very interesting. It doesn't, doesn't particularly add anything to your thesis. Or just another example, uh, I was interested in writing about the um, insurance crisis in the British insurance industry in the late 1980s because it's a, like a mini financial crisis. That crisis was triggered by a terrible accident called the Piper Alpha disaster. Huge oil rig in the North Sea blew up and over 150 men died and they triggered this insurance accident. So I thought, well, you know, it would be, I, I should write about this disaster briefly and explain what happened and then I'll talk about the insurance business. My sister is in safety engineering as it happens. So I got a bunch of books about these safety engineering books which contain descriptions of Piper Alpha and I started to read these books and discover Actually, they're describing tightly, complex, tightly coupled complex systems. They're describing systems that are like banking systems. And one book in particular, Normal Accidents by Charles Perrault, the epilogue is all about, well, how do we use these insights from safety engineering in the financial system, written in the late 1990s? So that was just a serendipitous discovery that um, you understand what happens to a nuclear power station, that tells you something about Wall Street. So in short, um, you have to read a lot. But that's okay, because reading a lot is fun. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guest has been Tim Harford, whose new book is called Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. Tim, thanks for being on Development Drums. Thank you very much. Why do we fight? Why do we fall? Why do we stand their backs against the wall? Why don't we change? Why don't we try? Why don't we turn round, help the other guy? The distance between us is a mystery to us all. The difference between us is so small. There are no answers, only questions.